Hello again, and thanks for joining me on this, the second part of my two-part tour of Bethlehem Hospital, the famous London Asylum. Bethlehem has had a poor press, and it still has a very poor press. What I've been trying to do, what I tried to do last time, and what I'm going to try and do again today is to pick through some of the key questions and accusations that were raised against Bethlehem and see whether it's really as bad as some people have made out. I'm Rab Houston and I'm the Professor of Modern History in the University of St Andrews. You're listening to the series of podcasts I'm doing on the history of psychiatry in Britain since the time of the Renaissance. Today's podcast is called Bedlam Part 2, Cruelty or Cure, and we're going to look at how cruel Bedlam really was, and also whether the hospital tried to cure people, or whether it just existed to lock them away. The Crook Affair, you remember the wonderfully named Dr. Helkiah Crook, The Crook Affair I mentioned at the end of last week's podcast brought about change, but sadly it wasn't the last scandal to affect Bethlehem. The next landmark inquiry came as part of a wider investigation of public and private madhouses in 1815. It uncovered neglect and regimes of treatment where depletion, restraint, domination and deprivation were common. William Norris, an American sailor who had been kept shackled to a bed for many years, became a public symbol of the abuses. And you'll see a contemporary etching of him is the illustration for today's podcast. Reformers and critics of Bethlehem and other asylums presented Norris as a victim of oppressive and negligent staff. It is, to be fair, worth pointing out that the staff themselves justified his treatment by saying that, far from the puny and helpless figure of the etching, he was a devious and dangerous man and that this particular form of restraint, which kept him in a frame on his bed, was the only practical way staff and other patients could be kept safe from him. Whatever the truth of Norris's treatment, the Parliamentary Inquiry of 1815 found that Bethlehem Hospital had a case to answer. The person who took the fall was the apothecary, John Haslam, who was in day-to-day charge of medical treatments for patients. Though undeniably an arrogant and abrasive man, Haslam had a considerable burden of responsibility. He was, as far as we can see, a therapeutic innovator, and he was probably no more at fault than any of the other officials who were put in the frame. For example, the surgeon to the hospital until just before the inquiry, he got out early, a man called Brian Crowther, was allegedly an alcoholic himself on the verge of madness. We know that for centuries 
Bethlehem was chronically understaffed. It was a charity and that meant it was usually short of money. Medical men only visited on a casual basis and the inferior staff were often indifferent or even sometimes brutal to patients. The hospital's regulations banned beating, but it's quite clear that it was a standard tool used by overworked and harassed staff. Patients who wrote accounts of the hospital in the early 19th century seem to have taken for granted that, th that they would be cold, hungry and abused. They include a man called Urbane Metcalf, whose description of his time at Bethlehem is one of my sources for the next series of podcasts I'll do on the voice of the mad. Better regulation and supervision after 1815 tempered criticisms of corruption or of neglect and abuse of patients in all types of institution. At Bethlehem, the patient profile also changed. Originally, and for centuries intended for paupers, Bethlehem increasingly took those who could pay, basically because it needed the money. Though the poorer classes constituted the majority of those confined in the 17th century, there were nonetheless considerable gradations of wealth and status amongst the inmates, with both the middling sort and the gentlemanly class well represented. In fact, by 1815 the hospital was probably too expensive and socially too exclusive for paupers to stand much chance of admission. Bethlehem's waiting list was as long as ever, so whatever its image problem, people obviously thought it had a function to perform. During the 19th century it became more upmarket still, and with a more secure base considerably better staffed. Yet try as it might, Bethlehem could not put scandals behind it. In 1851 another inquiry resulted in the hospital coming under the supervision of the recently established commissioners in lunacy who oversaw asylum provision from the 1840s onwards. I'll talk about them in the next block of podcasts. The appointment in the following year, 1852, of Dr Charles Hood as the first resident medical officer led to a change in social tone. The asylum became more bourgeois and there was much less use of restraint. Conferral of the title Bethlehem Royal Hospital in 1880 cemented the new ethos. When voluntary admissions became easier in the early 20th century, its reputation had soared, helping it attract growing numbers of voluntary patients. In 1900, just 8% of its admissions were voluntary. By 1947, the year before it was assimilated into national health, voluntary admissions made up fully 83% of all admissions. And my final question, what about cure? Whatever we might think, all asylums, Bethlehem included, stressed cure as their main objective. Until a ward for male incurables was opened in the 1720s, female incurables got their own ward a decade later, 
Bethlehem's governor's limited patient stays to one year, and the hope was that they could be discharged much sooner. During the 19th century, all asylums, Bethlehem included, filled up with longer-stay patients, partly, and perhaps curiously, the result of their success and of a consequent demand from families and parishes. However, their annual reports showed they prided themselves on curing and discharging patients rather than retaining them. Bethlehem certainly had a medical structure. It had visiting physicians, surgeons and apothecaries throughout its history, and certainly right up to the 19th century. Despite the criticisms levelled at it, the hospital followed more or less the same treatment regimes as private madhouses and the growing number of public or public voluntary asylums from the mid-18th century, or at least when staffing allowed it. Therapies included bathing in cold water, arrangements for aftercare, provision of a resident apothecary, Haslam was a resident apothecary, and a ward for incurables. Looking forward in time, in the 20th century, when its social catchment and ethos had changed entirely from early modern times, it was regarded as a model of psychiatric success, with an official recovery rate of 50% just before it was subsumed within the NHS in 1948. But even in early modern times, its indirect effects were considerable, in other words, the effect it had outside its walls as well as inside. Waiting lists were always very long, even after the larger new building opened in 1676. Around the doors of Bethlehem, as a result, there were many people called empirics, keen to cash in on disappointed relatives looking to have their sick relatives put into Bethlehem. Empirics were unqualified practitioners who claimed that experience in treating patients made up for a lack of formal training. Thus, a sort of therapeutic community developed around the hospital, albeit not of a very high professional standard. The same is incidentally true of other royal hospitals in London like St Bartholomew's and St Thomas's, also given to the City of London in 1547. So what I'm saying is that just by being there, Bethlehem contributed to the broader provision of care and cure for the mad. Finally, Bethlehem played a critical role in the history of treating insane criminals in England and Wales until the opening of Broadmoor Hospital in the 1860s. The acquittal, on the grounds of insanity, of James Hadfield for the attempted murder of King George III in 1800 led to new provision for incarcerating the criminal insane. What was known as an Act for the Safe Custody of Insane Persons Charged with Offences, passed in 1800, allowed those accused of treason or felony 
but acquitted on the grounds of their lunacy, to be detained, quote, at His Majesty's pleasure, in other words, without specified time limit. Cells for the criminal insane were opened in 1816 and central funds were provided to pay for the care of criminal lunatics under the supervision of the Home Secretary. So, to sum up, sum up, I've tried to set out in this podcast and the last what Bethlehem was really like. Judged by modern standards, the early Bethlehem seemed to live up to the image of a bedlam. It probably was brutal, cold, dark and dirty, though it was mainly for poor people before the 19th century and their lives outside it were far from a bed of roses. Reformers of the 18th and early 19th centuries used Bethlehem as a justification for change by extrapolating from the very worst examples they could find. Yet it would be wrong to leave you with a one-dimensional characterization of Bethlehem as a troubled institution dominated by scandals, a bedlam in all senses of the word. Criticising past practice is a good way of legitimating change for sure, but it's a pretty poor yardstick by which to judge history. And let's not forget that in the last hundred years of its history, Bethlehem was a model of good practice. In short, Bethlehem and Bedlam were not the same. Now, during this podcast I've talked particularly about Bethlehem, but I've also generalised widely about asylums as a whole. You'll remember that Bethlehem was unique as a public asylum until the foundation of Norwich's Bethel Hospital in 1713. The great age of public asylums came later still, between about 1830 and 1980. Their subject is the story that I'm going to tell in the next block of podcasts, and I very much hope you'll join me for that one.